Good morning. Before the call to worship, look with me at the silent meditation taken from Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Will you stand with me now, if you're able, for the call to worship from Revelation 15, 3 and 4? This is God's word. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Well, again, welcome to Grace and to the first Sunday of Advent. My name is Nick Stolnos. I'm the assistant pastor here at Grace. Pastor Jerry and his family are not here. They're on vacation and rest, so be in prayers for them. They'll all be back next week, Lord willing. But we're thankful that they can get some time away together and to rest. If you're a guest with us this morning, I want to say I'm glad that you're here. If you would, please fill out that blue card in front of you on the pew rack. It is just some information that we can gather so that we can introduce ourselves to you in a more formal way. If you have any questions for us, we'd be glad to answer and let you know more about the church. A few other things to uh, announce. We've got a couple choirs. So the kids' choir is continuing to practice. So right after the service, they're going to meet up front. And even if you haven't signed up yet and you want to be a part of this, come and uh, be a part of that practice. And then the adult choir will be right after the Sunday school hour, right back up here at 1210. And one more thing, the Women's Craft and Cookie Exchange will be next Saturday. So I'm sure um, if you haven't signed up yet, please do. That will be a good event for the women. Well, let's pray together. Please join with me in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you that you have gathered us again together as your people, that as we come to the, uh, the beginning of a new week, we, we glorify you. We again acknowledge that you are first in our lives, first in our families, first in our church. We thank you for the, the past week that we enjoyed with the the festivities and uh, gatherings together, but Lord, also difficulties. So we come to you uh, with the good and the challenging that we have experienced. Lord, with all of it, we come before you once again. Lord, we do pray for those who will be um, having uh, procedures done uh, in the coming days and weeks. We pray for peace. We pray for courage and confidence in your care for us, and we pray for those who will be caring uh, for those uh, doctors, nurses, caretakers. Lord, grant them all grace uh, to care for your people well. We do pray for the straits. Thank you that they get to take a rest together. Lord, refresh them, encourage them, and we ask, Lord, that you would bring them back to us safely. Finally, Lord, as we enter this Advent season, we pray that we would meditate on your coming, that we would rejoice 
in the truth, Lord Jesus, that you came and all that you did and the fact that you're coming back again. We rejoice in that. And we look forward to hearing uh, your word throughout this service and later on in the sermon. And Lord, we pray the prayer, Lord Jesus, that you taught us to pray as we say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And for the lighting of the Advent candle this morning, I'm inviting the Sorensen family to come on up. Hi, my name is Jacob Sorensen. This is my family, my wife Anne, son JR, daughter Jade, Violet, and Rose. And uh, we'll start with reading. As we begin our Advent season in the lighting of the candles of hope, peace, joy, and love, each candle will bring us closer to the time when we recall Jesus' birth as well as his second coming. Isaiah reminds us in 9-2, the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them the light has shined. In Matthew 25-13, Jesus tells us concerning his return too, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour which the Son of Man is coming. May the Lord use this season to draw you and your family closer to him. Today we light the candle of hope. The candle of hope is to remind us to prepare our hearts and the minds for the coming of God's Son, our Savior, Jesus the Christ. It is our prayer through this season you will trust that Jesus is our hope. Please join with me in our congregational prayer of confession, which is printed before you. Let's pray together. O oh, Almighty God, you brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. We acknowledge that we are unworthy of your redeeming grace. We have not believed your promises, nor trusted in our living Lord. In our worldliness, our eyes have been kept from discerning his presence with us. Our hearts have not burned within us as we have heard his word. We have not trusted in his redeeming power and have been overcome of evil. We have forgotten the glad tidings of his victory over death. We have not known the things that belong to our peace. But now in penitence we come to you, calling out for your forgiveness. Mercifully grant us deliverance from all our sins. Restore unto us the joy of your salvation. For Jesus Christ's sake, our only mediator and advocate. Amen. And as we come to the Lord acknowledging our sin, and even our failure to remember all that the Lord has done for us. In our failure to come to him, he comes to us reminding us of the truth, reminding us of the good news of what Jesus has done for us. So receive this assurance of pardon from Micah 7. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Brothers and sisters, as you look to Jesus, be confident in his steadfast love for you, in Jesus' steadfast love, in obeying perfectly, in dying as a sacrifice and rising from the dead. 
He is taking care of your sin. He is working in your life. Trust him and be confident in him. Good morning. I'd invite you to turn into your, in your Bibles uh, to the first letter of Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to be reading from verses 13 to 21 today. I've been anticipating this for a long time. I'm glad to be here again and to preach. Thankful for the opportunity to talk about hope today. So hear these words now from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 20. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. Let us pray together. Father, I thank you for this time that we can be together and reflect on your word. We recognize that our hope is in you. We desire, Father, to, uh, for you to cause us to be reminded of our hope and for us to be strengthened in that hope. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it is beginning to look a lot like Christmas. And this year it seems that people are decorating for Christmas and getting ready a little bit sooner. Um, people are excited about it. Christmas is a unique time in our culture. Uh, the, the Halloween decorations are coming down. The orange lights are coming down. And people are now decorating their houses with white lights. The spiders and the witches are being torn, taken down and the Santa Clauses are going up, the white and green lights. Uh, people are getting out their ugly sweaters and blazers to wear again at more Christmas parties. The uh, pumpkin spice is out, the peppermint is in. People become fans all of a sudden of jazz music because no music communicates Christmas like jazz music. and. Uh, we also start to hear about joy and peace and hope all over the place, in the most unlikely places sometimes, like advertisements for department stores. And uh, hope is actually pretty common to hear about in our culture and different situations, but it is often undefined. So unfortunately, even though hope is part of our vocabulary, even though we talk about it a lot, and in spite of a desire for hope, at the end of the day, 
what we hear often are vague ideas of hope that are just kind of floated out into the air. And the assumption is that because we speak about hope, that we actually have hope. The assumption is that affirming hope ensures hope. But for hope to be real, it must be grounded in reality. It has to be based on something true. An uncertain hope is nothing more than wishful thinking. And we can hope for many things. I can hope that I don't forget what I was supposed to say. But that's not what we talk about. That's not what we think about when we think about the hope that we have as Christians. And Peter reminds us of our hope. And so today as we think about what he has said to the Christians in his day, we're going to consider that we were once without hope. We're going to think about also what it took for us to have hope. And we'll meditate on the nature of our hope and now what we are supposed to do uh, and how we are supposed to hope. So first, you were once without hope. Peter says in, in chapter 1, verse 14, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. There was a time when we were ignorant, ignorant of God's salvation in Christ. Ultimately, a Christless life is a hopeless life. There is no hope apart from faith in Jesus Christ. And that former ignorance was characterized by various passions. Again, in verse 14, it says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So our former hopelessness is characterized by ignorance and the passions that accompany that. And he describes some of those in this letter. Chapter 2, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. In chapter 3, verse 8, he talks about living in unity, having unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love. And the implication is that in our former ignorance, those things were absent. In chapter 3, verse 8, do not repay evil with evil. In our former ignorance, with no hope, that's the way we live. We repay evil with evil. Chapter 4, verse 3. For the time is past, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. That is what a, a life without hope looks like. No knowledge of Christ, characterized by ignorance and various passions. And so for all these reasons and more, a Christless life is a hopeless life. And now what did it take for us to have hope? It was the mercy of God manifested for us in the world. Chapter 1, verse 20. He was foreknown, this is Jesus, before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. What it took for us to have hope was nothing less than Jesus Christ coming into the world. It was an act of divine mercy. There was no hope here apart from God's mercy on us. 
We were ransomed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 19. So not only did we need God's mercy, not only did we need him to reveal his salvation by sending his son, but it was with the precious blood of Christ that we were redeemed. So in order for us to have hope, God had to send his son. And in order for us to have hope, God's son has, had to die and spill his precious blood. Chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. There's no hope for us apart from the sacrifice of Jesus Christ bearing our sins on his body on the cross. It also took rebirth, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. In our Christless life, that life is a, a life of death. And it requires us to be reborn. And this is the word that was preached through the prophets. He says in chapter 1, verse 10, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired diligently. And they prophesied about the grace of Jesus and his suffering. And this is what we hear in the gospel, chapter 1, verse 23. The good news, oh, sorry. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Verse 25, this word is the good news that was preached to you. What it took was the good news preached about a rebirth that is accomplished and that is available to us through the shedding of God's, uh, the blood of God's son, who he sent here to this earth to save us from our hopeless life. And now uh, we're going to talk about the nature of this hope. And I want to pause and, and think about real hope for a minute, because as I mentioned earlier, hope is not a foreign concept to the world. Hope is something we hear a lot about. But as I said also, for a hope to be real, it has to be based on something true. It has to be something that often offer something better than what we have now. It is by definition something better than the world that we have. It is by definition something certain. It has to be something certain because if it is not, then it is again wishful thinking. It has to be lasting. It can't be subject to change. Otherwise, it cannot be a true hope. And so as we think about the nature of our hope, it also has to be necessary. It can't just be a nice thought. Because if it's not necessary, then we don't really need it, and we're wasting our time thinking about it. But it is necessary, and it's necessary for us, even having been saved. And so we can sing rightly, O come, O come, Emmanuel, this side of 
the birth and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ because we are still in exile. And Peter writes to those elect exiles of the dispersion. So you are saved, but yet you are in the midst of a world that is like uh, a w wandering in the wilderness. And we still look forward to the hope that will be revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it is necessary to have hope in order to be saved. And once you are saved, it is necessary to continue to meditate on that hope. So I said it ought to be true. It needs to be authoritative. And Peter writes in this letter, I have written to you briefly, this is chapter 5, 12, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. It has to be certain. How can we be certain that our hope is certain? It is something that was prophesied from beforehand. The prophets prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. And so at this time, we think about the prophecies of the coming of the Messiah. What was the point of the prophecies? If we weren't there to hear the prophecies, why are they important? Because they remind us that this is not an afterthought. Our salvation was not a contingency plan. It was certain from before the foundations of the world. Chapter 1, verse 20 again. He was foreknown. This is Jesus, the Savior, before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. So you were foreknown, and the Savior was foreknown, and you were chosen by God. This was not an afterthought. So as we think about the nature of your hope, think that this is not just a general hope that's out there available to whoever is interested. God had you in mind. You were chosen from before the foundations of the world. And the plan was in place from the foundations of the world. It was prophesied and Jesus was made manifest in the world so we can be certain that it was so and that when we think about a hope that we do have, we can be certain that it is so. And this is what we hear in the gospel. The gospel that is preached by the Spirit of heaven. Chapter 1, verse 12. It was revealed to them, to the prophets who prophesied, that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that now have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Spirit sent from heaven. These are not nice ideas invented by men and spread to whoever's interested. The gospel is preached by those who preach by the Spirit sent from heaven. So we can be certain of our hope. Furthermore, our hope needs to be lasting. It needs to be permanent, unshakable. And Peter speaks of a living hope. And it's interesting. We can read that and not really know what it means and kind of glance over it. But when you think about a living hope, we think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
We think about we were ransomed with the imperishable blood of Christ because we were not ransomed with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, which is imperishable. We were not ransomed with perishable things. We were not reborn to a perishable hope, but to a living hope that will not die. We were not born of imperishable seed, verse 23 of chapter 1, but through the living and abiding word of God. So there is a living word that is preached to you, and you are reborn through faith in that word to a living hope. And it is guaranteed because Christ shared his, shed his imperishable blood. Everything about the hope of the Christian is a living, continuing, lasting imperishable hope. Furthermore, Christ is a living stone. Chapter 2, verse 4. And we ourselves are living stones. Chapter 2, verse 5. Built into a spiritual house that will not die. And so... As we come to consider now, now that we have uh, talked about our hopelessness, what it took for us to have hope, what our hope is like, now what? And Peter says in the beginning of our passage today, verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the therefore is there considering all that Peter has said about this hope. First of all, you were foreknown, you were chosen by God, you were reborn to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You are being kept by faith through the salvation that is going to re be revealed. The salvation was prophesied by the prophets. And this, they prophesied about the grace that was coming to you. And therefore, set your hope fully on that grace. And the grace that is, will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Salvation is not merely a mile marker on the highway of life. It's not something that happened in the past and you know now we're just continuing more or less on the same road but just with salvation having passed the checkpoint for salvation. Salvation is more like an exit that takes you off of the road from destruction and puts you on a completely new path with a certain hope. It is something continuous. It is constantly with us. And so Peter is saying here, prepare your minds for action, sober-minded. Set your hope on that, that grace that will be brought to you. And these words that he uses, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, communicate that the Christian hope is not a passive hope, but an active hope. It is not something that we experience at one point 
and that we have like a good luck charm that we keep in our pocket that we mostly forget about until things get really bad, then we kind of remember, oh, I, do have, I do have some hope somewhere in here and I'll be okay. It is an active hoping. And he communicates this with these phrases, preparing your minds for action, which actually translates the phrase, girding up the loins of your mind. And many people have, are perhaps familiar with that phrase. It's a, a way that in the original context of the letter, where people would wear tunics and loose-fitting clothing because they didn't have yoga pants and the, the uh, what do we call it, the active wear that we have today. Their active wear was taking their loose-fitting clothing and binding it up so that they could maneuver more freely. And Peter is saying, do that to your mind. Perhaps a, a translation today would be rolling up your sleeves and taking it seriously. I like the phrase, put a helmet on and get in the game, personally. Prepare your minds for action and being sober-minded. And what does he mean by being sober-minded and preparing your minds for action? Immediately after saying that, he says this, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And so as we think about our active hope, it is expressed in holiness. So the sobriety that he's calling for is expressed through conduct. Be holy. We are now God's people. He is our Father. We are his sheep. And he is holy. And we too ought to be holy. Now when we start to think about holiness and we start to hear people say, be holy, we can, start, we can begin to feel a little uncomfortable because it sounds like you're preaching that I have to not sin and we're saved by grace. And so don't, don't preach that I shouldn't, you know, don't preach that I have to be holy. But keep in mind that this is the apostle of Jesus Christ, Peter, saying, be holy. But also keep in mind that holiness is not the source of our hope. He does not say, set your hope fully on your holiness. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you, but be holy. So what is holiness and how does it function in the life of a believer? It is the expression of the hope that we have. If our hope were in this world, it would make no sense to deny our passions. Living a holy life would be irrational. If our hope were in this world, we should be doing what we want to do. But when we deny our passions, we demonstrate that our hope is not in this world, but in heaven. 
we demonstrate that we are children of the Father by living a holy life. And holiness is a testimony to those around us. Our holy conduct, chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak about you, against you, as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of judgment. It will lead those in the world to glorify God. Chapter 2, verse 15. This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. In chapter 3, verse, verses 1 and 2. Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the world, oh, sorry, do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Holy conduct can win over an unbelieving spouse. And holy conduct will also prompt a reaction from those who have no hope around you. And they will wonder where your hope is. And so we are told in chapter 3, verse 15, always being ready to give a defense to anyone who asks us for the hope that we have. So be holy. Do not set your hope on your holiness. Set your hope on the grace that is coming to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ. But be holy as an expression of that hope that you have. When we live in a hopeless world, and that is more or less acknowledged uh, there are songs everywhere that speak about brokenness and hopelessness. People desire youth and they lose it and then everything becomes depression from then on because you wanted the times of the past and they're gone and now all that seems to happen is the body breaks down, you start to get old and you long for youth I don't know how many times I've heard the song by Brian, I think it's Brian Adams. Summer of 69, those were the best days of my life. How many, how many decades later is he gonna be reflecting on those times? That is hopeless because they're gone. But it's even more hopeless than that. Um, ever since Darwin came along, our culture now has a, a more comfortable pedestal to stand on and deny God. We no longer need God because we have a way that we think we can explain everything apart from God, but we still like to think that there's hope out there. So now people will say, no, we don't need God for a purpose. We don't need God for anything. It's the universe and us. And you have people like Richard Dawkins, a uh, famous atheist biologist from England who says that the universe is a pitiless place and the universe does not owe you a sense of purpose. And others like Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, Tyson who is a physicist, atheist, 
says the universe is under no obligation to make sense to you. You don't like it? It's tough. But both of those will say, yep, yeah, there's no hope, but you, we can still have hope. We can hope in science. We can hope in... And that is as empty as you can get. And so now you have books that are written. Uh, one book that just came out two years ago, and it is by an author named Mark Manson, 2019, wrote a book, I have to paraphrase the title, um, called Everything is Messed Up. And he begins by saying, if I were a, a barista at Starbucks, instead of writing people's names on their cups, I would write, you know, soon you're gonna die. Nothing you have ever done will make any difference outside of a couple of people. Your life is meaningless. Enjoy your coffee. <laughs> Something like that. And, and he calls this the uncomfortable truth. There is no meaning in life. There is no purpose. There is no hope. The subtitle of the book, by the way, is A Book About Hope. <laughs> there is no hope. He calls that the uncomfortable truth. When we can embrace that we are just stardust and that we just happen to be here on this tiny blue speck in the middle of the universe, when we can embrace that, then we can start to live and, and you know, define our own hope and live for that. And I just don't understand how somebody can say, yeah, we have no hope, but let's make hope, and actually think that that is a better alternative to anything else. And they, all of those that I, that I cited, they all believe in morality. They all believe that we ought to live a certain way, and we ought not to do other things. So after everything that I've said, People don't want to hear it. People don't want to hear that God loved you, that God chose you, that Jesus died for you, that your sins are paid for. It's a very strange situation. And this is what I call, after having read or skimmed parts of this book that I referred to, the truly uncomfortable truth is Jesus loves you. The truly uncomfortable truth is that Jesus died for you. Think about this. When we receive a gift from somebody, there is something in us that desires naturally to reciprocate that and do something good. Either change our attitude, be thankful, do something for somebody else, repay the person who did something for us. But oftentimes when people we do not know do something for us that is nice and genuine, it makes us uncomfortable because there's a relational thing there. there there's, there's intimacy, there's vulnerability, and we don't like it. So the same is true when you say to somebody, Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. They don't want to hear it. It makes them uncomfortable. That is the truly uncomfortable truth, that we are hopeless apart from God, 
that he secured our salvation, and that all you have to do is accept it, love him, recognize that he is your father, recognize that you need his salvation. That is uncomfortable, and that is truly uncomfortable. And so our society responds with distraction. We distract ourselves from God's authority. And we can do this as Christians as well. Because even going back to the analogy of, of doing something nice for somebody, even when you have a relationship with somebody, there's still sometimes a sense in which you want to be by yourself. You don't want, when somebody does something for you, you're like, okay, yeah, but not now. Not now, I'm, I'm, I don't want that vulnerability right now. I'm focused on something else. And even after having become Christians, we can become distracted by other things that take our hope off of what it should be and put it on something else. We can be distracted by being good citizens, by being studious, being distracted with busyness. We can even be distracted with religion. And our culture distracts itself every day, all the time, with these types of things. But at the end of the day, if you deny your need for a hope, if you deny your hopelessness, and you say, no, I can find hope in something else, I can give my own life meaning, know that you can only do that for so long. Because each one of us, one day, will go to the grave. And uh, Bob Dylan said, he not busy being born is busy dying. And so, year after year, as our bodies start to ache more, as our health starts to fail, we're no longer able to run as fast or eat what we used to eat, we're reminded that our destiny, destiny ultimately, apart from Christ, is death. Death reminds us that we have no real ability to manufacture hope. You can convince yourself you do, but it's just a matter of time, and you never know when it's going to happen. You can't guarantee that your plans will come to fruition. You can't guarantee that you will live another day. And with death comes judgment. So, chapter 17 of verse 1 says, If you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. We are to remember that God, yes, is our Father. And yes, we call on him. But he is also a judge. We will be judged. And when we are in Christ, we will be found with the righteousness of Christ. The world will be judged as well in its hopelessness. And death is a reminder that only a living hope is a true hope. And so my hope is that we will take this to heart today, that as our culture begins to speak more about hope and joy and peace during the time of Christmas, that we will take 
that time to think about hope in a specific way and that we will be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have when they ask us. Because apart from Christ, there is no hope. And there's nothing sadder than people made in the image of God perishing in their sins. And so I close with a verse from chapter 5, two verses, chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. During this time of exile, where we may suffer and where we need hope in the forefront of our mind, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, the grace that was prophesied, the grace on which we are to set our hope fully, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore. He will confirm. He will strengthen. He will establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we recognize that we are hopeless. We thank you because you are our Father, because you saw us in a hopeless condition. You chose us. You made us your people. We were wandering, and we have returned to you the shepherd of our souls. Only in you is there true hope. Give us strength, Father. Convict us with your word and your spirit of the hope that we have. Let us not be distracted by the false hopes, the empty hopes of the world. Let us not be comfortable with our friends and neighbors living with false hope, Father. But may our holy conduct be a testimony and may our words be always ready to give an answer to the hope that we have. And I pray all of this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Receive this parting blessing from Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.